Welcome to the Wealthy Homes Podcast, where we help young Michigan families manage their finances and create wealth. I'm your host, Connor Bowserman, financial advisor with Preferred Financial Group. Welcome back to the Wealthy Homes Podcast. This is Connor Bowserman, and I am your host, financial advisor with Preferred Financial Group. And in this episode, we're going to be interviewing Kyle McGann, who is with Supreme Lending, and he is a mortgage loan officer. And we're going to be diving into a little bit about mortgages and kind of the beginner mortgages for first-time homebuyers and just some extra questions that we'll throw at him. So, Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Connor. I'm, I'm really excited to be here, and I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So for all the listeners, I just want to give a little backstory. Kyle and I, if you don't know us personally, we're longtime best friends. We've known each other since like day one. Uh, <laughs> we've been on family vacations together uh, throughout the years, and we've just stayed, stayed really close. Even in times where we didn't speak for a while, the times that we did get back together, it was like no time had passed. Just one of those great friends. So when I started this podcast, I was like, I got to get Kyle on. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you thinking about me because you're right. This has been a long lasting friendship and certainly goes all the way back to diapers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I remember even a couple of years ago, I was listening to podcasts and so were you. And I was like, Kyle, you got to start one, dude. You're just that kind of personality. And so it's kind of funny, full circle. I'm the one starting one. And but yeah, no I'm kidding. I, uh, I had always been racking my brain for what a good podcast would be. And then I kind of just abandoned the idea. But when you brought this up and told me the structure and the approach of yours, it's just, it's perfect. And I, I really think it's a great idea. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. But let's kind of get into everything. This podcast is family oriented. It's financial planning for the young families. But before we kind of get into some of the business, tell us about your family and kind of where you're at in life. Yeah. Yeah. So I am... 29 years old, and I live down in the metro Atlanta area now. I've been living here for coming up on three years, coming up on four years, actually. And uh, I live down here with my wife, and she is currently pregnant. We're expecting our first child here soon. And Congratulations. Two... Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's very exciting. So that's coming up in three months or four months. And... And yeah, we've got two small dogs, but otherwise it's just, we don't have a lot of family in the area. So we've just been doing our own thing. Nice. Nice. There's some, definitely some good with that, especially once you start having kids and time seems <laughs> to, to speed up on, on some different levels. Yeah. We're racking our brains to find a good babysitter with no family, in town, <laughs> but other than, other than that. <laughs> that can definitely be a challenge. Right. Right. But you guys had some time to kind of get into your careers and I know you went to Michigan State, but can you tell everybody kind of how you got into doing mortgages? Yeah, definitely. So I got into mortgages not in a very expected way. So like you mentioned, I went to Michigan State and I graduated with a bachelor a bachelor's degree in kinesiology. And my expectation was that I was going to go to the medical field in some capacity. And after I graduated, I got a job and I wasn't loving it. So at the time, I had a friend who worked as a mortgage underwriter in the metro Detroit area, and I was talking to him about his career, and it really just kind of lit up and made me realize that that could be a good option. So it checked all the boxes for me, and one thing led to another, and he was able to get me a job there at a company called United Wholesale Mortgage in the metro Detroit area. 
So I started there about a year after I graduated college and they put you through kind of a crash course of mortgages and everything you need to know. And in that crash course, right when I started was where I met Kara, my wife. And so we, we started on the mortgage journey together, but started on the operations finance side of things and worked there for over a year before I moved down here to Georgia and started a kind of shifting gears to a separate career, which was still in underwriting, but it was more along the business side of things versus the residential side of things. And that wasn't exactly my cup of tea. And I knew that I really wanted to get back into the mortgage side of things. And once the pandemic hit, mortgages, as you know, just went off. And right. so especially refinances. <laughs> yes, the boom was there. Everybody was buying, everybody was refinancing and a bunch of opportunities opened back up in mortgages for me. And so that ended up being a perfect transition for me to hop back into the mortgage world, again, still in underwriting and on the finance side. And uh, I worked in that position at my current company for a little over two years and I ended up going into management and still on that side of things before I made my transition to where I am now, which is on the sales side as a mortgage loan officer. So that's kind of how I got to the point that I'm at now. Yeah. I know that you've kind of been in the underwriting position for quite a while. And I think that it's great that you got some of the background knowledge before really just jumping into mortgage. I think most people get and do that, right? Uh, especially like through maybe credit unions or some type of banks that like usually they get put under some type of a loan uh, originator and then then they kind of work up. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's almost like an apprenticeship when you're coming at it from a sales side first. There's just, frankly, with mortgages, I would assume that 95% of the population of people that work with mortgages that was not their plan. <laughs> and they, right. they kind of stumbled into it one way or another. So with that, there's not a ton of background experience and background education that sets you up to just start without a significant amount of training or like you said, apprenticeship working under somebody else. So with some of that background knowledge and then going into kind of your new career as just a, an actual loan officer. I'm sure you've seen people who are ready for mortgages and people who aren't. So I guess before we kind of talk about people who are getting a beginner mortgage or you know some options that they may have, what are some things that somebody should have before they even think about buying a house or looking at getting a mortgage loan? Yeah, great question. I think this is starting early is the best thing that you can do. And specifically, I think just planning. There's a lot of unknowns that go along with getting a house, getting a mortgage. And so the first thing I would say is budget. Make sure that you have a good budget at home. And I'm sure this is something that you speak about all the time, but make sure that you know what money's coming in and what money's going out so that you can make good financial decisions. But the three big things that you should have kind of lined up before you actually decide to get a mortgage is what I call the three C's. And the C's stand for credit, capacity, and cash. So really when you're getting a mortgage, credit is king. It is what dictates your interest rate, the costs associated with your mortgage, and what loan program you're gonna be getting into. And so if you're just starting off 
as in really in your adult life or in the part of your life where you're ready to buy a home, having a good credit built is very important. And so for me, when I bought my first house, I only had one credit card opened in my name. I didn't have a significant amount of credit, but I had that credit card open for a long enough time and I had paid it on time and used it. So my, my credit score was good enough and established enough to where I could get a mortgage. So you don't necessarily have to have car loans and, and anything like that. You just need to have something on your credit history and your credit report that will give you a good credit score, even if it's an authorized user account or something along those lines. So credit right. is king. The second C is capacity. And the capacity means your ability to handle a monthly payment. So what that's really looking at is all of your monthly debts that we would find on your credit report and the, the monthly payment of your house divided by your gross monthly income. And that's how you would get to what your capacity is. And essentially that capacity cannot exceed 50%. So your debts cannot exceed 50% of your income. And then the third C is your cash. You just need to make sure that you've got cash built up because this process can be expensive and there's a lot of things that you have to pay for, including the down payment. And so you should have a good amount of money saved up. And we can talk about the specifics of what a good amount of money really means. Right. Yeah, I think that's people always think that they have enough or that maybe they've got like the percentage for a down payment, but they don't realize that there's a lot of other costs that come into closing a loan or that you have to put into uh that first payment, basically, you got your homeowner's right. insurance and taxes that you got to prepay. So a lot of people do forget that part. Absolutely. Yeah. And but I, I want to, I want real quick, I just want to throw in two funny stories. Um, one of them was when I first was getting my first house, I was of course doing the budget, like you were kind of saying, and I had went to my sister-in-law at the time because she had a house and was kind of wouldn't say a big house, but it was a beginner house and which was pretty close to what I was looking for. And so I just was like, Hey, can you be kind of personal with me and let me know what your different bills are for your utilities and all this different stuff. So I could go through and, and really build a budget out. And I thought it was funny because years later, one of my friends was looking at buying a house and he was like, yeah, I, I, I'm right now I'm in an apartment and my heating bill is like 20 bucks a month. And so I figured I just take the square footage of my apartment and I'll multiply it by three. Cause that's the square footage <laughs> of the house I'm looking at. And I was like, dude, you're so far off. Yeah, and I, right. said, I said, dude, you're on the third floor. You don't even turn on your heat. The heat comes to you. <laughs> yeah. He comes to you. So it was really fun. I was like, Hey, this is what I pay. So and our houses were kind of built in similar years. So I was like, if you can take mine and multiply it out, like that's probably pretty close to what your actual amount would be. But I wanted to throw that out there because again, you know, the budget's budget is is primary and number one. And then beyond that is yeah, having all the capacity and the cash. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a different ball game when you have an entire house to yourself versus an apartment. Absolutely. <laughs> So when somebody's getting ready for the process, what does that look like? So let's say they're, you know, maybe they've been looking on Zillow or they've maybe contacted an agent and they're like, hey, we're financially ready, or at least we think so. And this is kind of like our range that we're thinking 
yeah. before we start like really looking at houses, what's kind of the, the next step for them? Yeah, definitely. So you, you mentioned a good thing, looking on Zillow, kind of getting the wheels turning. A few things for that early process, I would say that are really important is the first one is look at Zillow, look at just home prices in your area to get a feel for what you're, what you want. And then also use an online, you can Google these, an online mortgage calculator and look at what the just general interest rate is at that time and plug in your numbers because Zillow is taking into consideration 20% down payments. They're taking into consideration some generalizations that can be a little bit misleading. So they can help you find the houses that you love, but also take it upon yourself to dive in and, and do a little bit more research on what monthly payment to expect at that price point. But once you've gotten to that point and, and you think that you're ready to start looking for the houses, I would say when you contact your agent, you can either contact an agent directly or you can contact a loan officer directly because the first thing you're going to want to do is get pre-approved. And what that looks like is having the conversation with the mortgage professional, which is what I do, kind of laying all the cards out there and having sort of an interview with them so that they can help you get to a point and tell you really what you can qualify for. At that point in the process, you're going to get your credit report pulled. You can tell them what your income is, and, and they might ask for documents to support that. And you can tell them what your what amount of cash you have saved up is, and they can document that as well. And the reason that's so important is because mortgage qualification process can be a bit more rigorous than what you might expect. And a good example of that is if you work overtime or you get bonus income. Just because last month you got $2,000 in overtime because it was maybe it was the holiday season and you worked a lot doesn't mean that we just get to lump that in with your qualifying income. We have to take an average of all of the overtime that you've made over the past 24 months and make and take an average so that it's something that we can expect for the future. So there's things like that that you might not expect when you're doing this planning. And so you might maybe buff up your income a little bit more than what we would get on the lending side. So I would say the first step is get pre-approved and then you're free to go shopping. Once you know what you're pre-approved for, then it's open season. You can get out there every weekend, every day, looking at houses until you find the one that you love and put in the offer. And then once you go under contract, that's when you're coming and talking to me again. And, and we're going to actually get you in the system and start working towards getting you, getting you a mortgage. So one thing I wanted to, to ask, um, because I know a lot of people talk about being like, was it pre-authorized versus pre-approved? Yeah. Pre-qualified versus pre-approved. Pre-qualified. And that's just based on purely on income, correct? Yeah, really those, some lenders use that terminology differently. I would say the way that I view it is a pre-qualification is you and me talking on the phone and you say, Hey, look, I make a hundred thousand dollars a year and I have a hundred dollar a month car payment and that's it. And I say, well, great. Well, then here's what, based on that information, you could get qualified for. That's a pre-qualification. A pre-approval is a bit more in-depth where I'm really getting your credit score in front of me. I'm really getting your documentation, your pay stubs, your W-2s, and verifying these things. And that difference is really important when you're putting an offer in on a house because the listing agent might see that and say, you know, that was just a pre-qualification. And so that's not backed up by anything. No documentations have been given. 
And we don't think this offer is as strong as somebody who might have been formally pre-approved. And so we're going to go with the other person. Yeah. And in this environment, even with a little bit higher interest rates, you know, you, you have to have the best offer. You do. Yeah. yeah. Highest and best always. Yes. So you've kind of talked a little bit about having some money set aside for the mortgage process, I guess, just in generalization, what would you say is like the minimum most people should have? And you can use like percentages or something like that um, to to give you that number. Yeah, definitely. I think that there's a lot of people out there that like you alluded to earlier, don't have a good expectation of, of really what's involved. And so there's two primary things that you need to be prepared to pay for when you're getting a house. The first one is of course the down payment and the minimum down payment for a first time home buyer is 3%. So that's 3% of the sales price of the property. And then you need to also cover closing costs. And so closing costs are, they're really just all of the fees and the costs to get the loan and their tax fees, fees to the attorney for putting property in your name they're the lender fees, and then there's the cost to get the interest rate. And so those closing costs can range from anywhere from 3 to 5% of the sales price. And so all in, you're looking anywhere from 6 to 8 sometimes 9% of the sales price of the property is what you should come generally prepared to, to pay. That's some great information. I think a lot of people can relate to that rather than like dollar figures. Right. Uh, and then you kind of alluded to, you know, a first time home buyer getting 3%. Can you uh, dive a little bit deeper into that? What is like a first time home buyer loan and then kind of get into the conventionals? What, what are their options there too? Yeah, definitely. So there's really two types of home buyers that we look at from a mortgage point of view. And it's a first time home buyer and a repeat home buyer. And so a first time home buyer is defined as somebody who has not owned a property within the past three years. So this doesn't actually mean you've never owned a home. It just means you haven't owned one in three years. And so for that person, there are a few programs that can be a little bit more beneficial. And um, one of them is that you can get 3% down as, as a down payment. And there are ways for repeat home buyers to get 3% down as well but primarily it's for first time home buyers. And that's a big benefit because that allows you to get into a home and it's just a lower barrier of entry to allow people to get into homes, which is overall a good thing. It's a good investment, it's a, it's a wise move. And then the other person is, is a repeat home buyer and that's exactly what it sounds like. You either already have a home and you're keeping it, buying another one, or you're selling your property to move into another property sort of a thing. And typically, for a repeat home buyer, you're looking at a minimum down payment of 5%. And then th- that's those numbers are based on conventional. So there's multiple loan programs out there, conventional being the most popular one. And that is what I just outlined with 3% down, 5% down. And the other program that's very, very prominent is FHA. So the Federal Housing Administration those loans have a few different requirements and parameters but chiefly all buyers whether they're first time or or repeat buyers can have a minimum of three and a half percent down payment and then also 
going back to the capacity that I spoke about earlier, FHA loans allow you to use more of your income towards a home. And by that, I mean the debt to income ratio can be higher. So if a conventional loan, you cannot exceed 50% of your gross monthly income with all of your monthly debts. For an FHA loan, that threshold is 56%, which might not sound significant, but it can make a big difference with a pre-approval amount. Yeah, I can definitely see that, especially with really first-time home buyers. You know, if they're coming out of college and they've got some student loan debt, maybe they've been using their car that they had since high school and so they're finally upgrading their car and so yeah maybe they've got a little bit more debt than than they would like yes but they also know that they want to get into some kind of real estate whether that's their first home buyer or or whatever it is yeah exactly so i know with most of those first time home buyers or even if you are under 20 percent when it comes to a conventional mortgage can you explain pmi and kind of the ramifications of that. Definitely. Yeah. So PMI stands for private mortgage insurance and mortgage insurance is really, it's a tool that came around because you used to have to put 20% down or else the banks wouldn't even look at you. Well, in order to help people put less money down and lower the barrier of entry to get into a home, they decrease the down payment requirement. But in order to minimize the risk with doing so, they added mortgage insurance. And so it is a buyer paid insurance plan that protects the lender in case of default or foreclosure or something like that. And so ultimately what that means is you, if you are putting less than 20% down on a conventional loan or any amount on an FHA loan, for all intents and purposes, there are caveats to that. But if you are within that down payment requirement, you have to add to your monthly payment what is called mortgage insurance. And it is a percentage of the loan amount. It is included in your monthly payment. And after you reach 20% equity in the property, it automatically falls off. So it's not something with conventional loans that you have for the life of the loan. FHA loans, you do have it for the life of the loan. No, I think that's good because I've even heard of some people who their value got over above the 20%, like they had put in the amount to go above PMI, but they had to call to actually get it removed. So some companies are a little bit different. They won't automatically take that off. So make sure you're cognizant of that if you did buy under the PMI. Yes. Um, Now, one question I had, you know, I would say most people, especially if they listen to Dave Ramsey or, you know, their parents who listen to Dave Ramsey or those type of values, they wait really long time to, to buy, to get to that 20%. But from what you've seen when they come in for a first time home buyer, what percentage do you think that first time home buyers are buying under that 20% limit? Almost exclusively. Or 20% down. Yeah. You, you will, first off, you make a great point with the sort of Dave Ramsey ideals. And you're right. That kind of leads people to wait, wait, wait. And instead of capitalizing on appreciation and home ownership and things. But to answer your question, it is the vast majority of first-time home buyers, and frankly, home buyers in general, that are putting down, if not the minimum down payment, less than 20%. It's, it's fairly uncommon to see, at least from my experiences, 
it's been fairly uncommon to see first-time home buyers that are putting down 20% or more. No, I, I figured that, and I, I just wanted to ask that question because I think it's good for the listeners, especially if they're a first-time home buyer, because it's always preach, oh, put 20% down, especially if you automatically get on Zillow, they're assuming that, where people assume that they have to kind of hit that limit, where I think the majority of first-time home buyers really don't. Yes, I think you're right. So I think that's I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's one of those things where you're right. It's it's such an interesting stigma around the 20% down and where it's just as long as everything's in your budget and you have the money for it, go ahead and strike while the iron's hot. It's a great choice. It can be. <laughs> I shouldn't say it is for everybody, but it can be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously person to right. person. And I know for, for some, I, I was talking to a guy a while ago and he was kind of in that boat. You know, he was trying to get over and above even 20% because he wanted, you know, to do some extra things too. And he's like, man, I missed out big time. You know, I didn't buy because I thought things were hot. And then COVID hit and things just went really hot. And he's like, I just, I missed, I missed the mark. And, um, and I, I can see that too. A lot of times with people when it comes to the market and investing is people always want to sit on the sidelines until it's the most opportune time. And it's not timing the market, it's time in the market wow. uh, for the vast majority of people. Well said. And so I, I would say, uh, you know, especially for real estate, it's just like that as well. Obviously, don't overbuy, you know, making sure that you're buying a home that you can afford uh, is at the top of the list. But beyond that, just making sure you find a good loan officer like Kyle or someone in your area that can describe what a loan is and the pluses and minuses of that. And then even coming back to your realtor, because they might say, hey, you might want to do the FHA, but if you can qualify and go that extra percent and a half to the 5% and go conventional, you're going to have a much better option of getting the house that you really want. Exactly. And this market is a little bit different now than it was maybe a year ago, but your agent will be able to help you out with that as yeah. well. And you made a really good point that I wanted to touch on. And it's that it's the waiting on the sidelines or looking at the market and waiting for it to be advantageous or preferable for you. And in reality, first, everybody's doing that. So if the market does get into a position like it did during COVID where it's excellent to buy, then every single person does it, drives up demand and it drives up prices and you see this insane boom. And then on the contrary, I talk to a lot of people that are saying, hey, I don't want to buy right now because I think the bubble is about to pop. That is a conversation in and of itself. But really, people are always going to be watching the market and it's never going to truly be a perfect time to buy. So just like you said, it's not, what did you say? It's not time. It's it's yeah, it's not timing the market, it is time in I love the market. It. And I guess in this in this instance, it's time in your house, not timing sure. buying yeah. the house. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So one, I guess I got a couple quick questions I want to ask, I guess for for a young family or a first-time home buyer, what's probably the biggest misconception or misunderstanding that you see uh, when it comes to getting a mortgage? Yeah, I would say a big one we touched on plenty already, but is the 20% down. You don't need to have that much down. Another one that I, I, I'm kind of surprised that I get this a lot, but I do. People believing that there's some sort of a mysterious first-time home buyer program out there where they don't have to put a down payment down and it's kind of significantly cheaper than other loans. That isn't the case. There are niche products that are based around 
down payment assistance and putting 0% down. But for the most part, that's not just some common loan program for first-time home buyers. And then two more that I think people should be aware of is one of them, the seller of the property is the one that pays your real estate agent fees. So the seller out of their proceeds pays both their agent and your agent's fees. So you don't have to pay for that. Sometimes it's 3% that goes to the agent. You do not have to pay for that for the most part. Again, there's some off-market deals that might require that. But by and large, right. that's not something the buyer pays. And then the last thing is I get a lot of people that are specifically hung up on the exact number that their rate is. Like, oh, my my friend got a four and a half, so I cannot, I can't do a five and a half. I know my friend got a four and a half, so I need that or better. And in reality, it always comes back to if the numbers make sense in your budget and you are comfortable with the numbers, then don't worry about the interest rate. It's easier said than done, but I work with a lot of people where I say, hey, do you like this monthly payment? And they say, absolutely, that's what I was hoping for. And they don't even know what the interest rate is because ultimately it's not the biggest factor the actual monthly payment is. Well, and then the big thing too is it comes down to to your specific situation. If your credit is different than your buddies or if they have phenomenal credit and you have good credit, like there's a big difference when it comes to the interest rate just based off of your credit score. And I think that's another big misconception too is people think that their credit score is much higher because they got on Credit Karma or something like that. But when you do a mortgage, like you can kind of hit on this a little bit more is that's a hard pull. It's so different. different. And thank you for bringing that up. I, I would have forgotten that, but it's so, so, so true. And Essentially, it's this. The three credit bureaus, the three main credit bureaus are TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. Their calculation for giving your credit score is completely proprietary and private, so it is not common knowledge. Also, like you mentioned, the mortgage credit pool is a hard inquiry, and so they're taking a lot more into consideration. So all that is to say, when you're looking on the apps, even if you're paying for the Experian premium app, it's not going to tell you accurately what your credit score is. The majority of the time, your credit score from a mortgage point of view is lower than what you would see on the internet, Credit Karma, your bank, whatever. Sometimes it's higher, honestly, but frankly, it's just inconsistent. Absolutely, absolutely. So one question I've got before we kind of get into uh, my ending question, and that's just because I know you personally, and I think it piques my interest, and I know... I think it piques a lot of other people's interests who are on the younger side, and that's kind of getting into rental mm-hmm. houses. And I know if you listen to any of the videos or TikToks or these big billionaire business moguls, they say get into real estate and, and buy these rental homes and, and eventually refinance and all that good stuff. You you and Kara went in and bought a rental. So I just wanted you to kind of explain the process to getting that loan or getting that that property and kind of what went into getting that? Yeah, it's a great question because you're right. I think a lot of people look at it and they see social media, they get all pumped up and those billionaires who are extreme one-off scenarios paint it to be just an overnight success. Um, Well, so really we'd been wanting to invest in real estate for a long time. And what it boiled down to for us in terms of the process was of course, saving up the money to do 20% down because for first time home buyers, there's less down payments, but for rental properties, you have to put at least 15% down. And that money all has to be yours. It cannot come from a gift. 
So 20% down is a little bit more favorable, but um, so we knew we needed to have a significant amount saved up. And then we really focused on a few things, which was researching our area to see what's reasonable. What should we expect in terms of cash flow? What's the general cost? What are properties potential for growth and the growth in the area? Because again, this is a long-term investment that we want to make sure this property appreciates over time. So the first thing that we looked at was was the cost. What was our budget allowing for? And it, it was around the 250 to 275 mark is what we were shooting for. We knew we wanted to put 20% down. So we got a $255,000 house. And because we bought in kind of the hotter time in the market, we paid 5,000 over asking. So we paid 260 and all in with our down payment and closing costs, we paid around $72,000. Wow. And so we were all in. That put our monthly payment at $1,272. It's pretty reasonable. Yeah, very reasonable. And so that was with a 5.625% interest rate. And, and funny story about that, that was when the interest rates were just beginning to tick up. And our loan officer at the time called us and said, hey, I'm going to shoot you guys straight. Today is the worst I've ever seen the interest rates. Oh, no. And little did we know now in hindsight, it was wonderful. The, like if you got a 5.625 on a rental property right now, you'd be doing something that nobody else knows. Um, yeah, our monthly payments, 1272 And then we rented out for $1,700. So a little bit over $400 a month in positive cash flow. Um, but the biggest thing that I think we, we looked at was it's in an area that we trust is going to appreciate. It's not just the best bargain that we could find. It's not just the most cash flowing that we could find. It was specifically in an area that we trust is going to appreciate over time. No, I think that's some good thinking, especially when it comes to risk reward. If you ever needed to sell it or something like that, if you, if you bought in a good area, the likelihood that you're going to get more than what you bought it for is 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 a really good chance. And I, I had that same mentality when I bought my first house is, okay, if I'm going to buy my first house, like I don't want to just buy something that I think is a bargain. I want to buy it in an area where I know it's going to appreciate. Um, and for us, it was a really good area in the Kalamazoo right. area. So uh, that was my mentality it as well. For you. <laughs> it, it did. It did. And, and you know, just – getting to my personal life a little bit, I wish we would have kept it. Um, I wish we would have probably done things a little bit different, maybe a refinance and just pulled some of the the equity out and, and then tried to rent it just because it was in a phenomenal mm. area to do a rental. Cause it was actually a rental house for 30 years before oh, wow. we bought it. So it was a proven track record, I guess you could say, but right, yeah, tried and true. Exactly. Um, but at that time, it was a trying time for us. We were, you know, we had bought two house, you know, because we were planning on selling that one. So we had two mortgages and obviously we weren't running it. So we weren't getting any kind of cash flow for us. And Isaiah was going through his surgeries right. at that time, uh, just trying to keep up with two properties. And so it really didn't make sense for us. But, you know, everything works out. Um in the long run and God's working in different ways. So 
I trust that he did sure. the right thing for us. Uh, but I th I've heard that a lot of times though, too. You know, people said, oh man, I had this small house and I wish I would have kept it. I wish I would have kept it. So not that it's right for everybody, but maybe that's something that some people can look at when they are moving from their first house to maybe their second yeah. or third. So, yeah, I think so. Definitely. Real quick, before I get to my last question, because sure. we're running out of time here, is what's something that you wish you would have known now that you've got that rental property that you wish you would have known before you got into it? For us, it's an easy answer. This would be a different answer for you, I'm sure, because you're much more savvy in this area. But uh, we grossly <laughs> underestimated the um, time it would take to get that property ready to rent. And it wasn't a fix and flip. It was ready to go. We just needed to paint the house and you know, replace the vanity, replace the kitchen sink, do new light fixtures and stuff. So it wasn't structural or significant, but it was just Kara and I, and we did not budget enough time for it. So what that ended up doing was um, we ended up, we paid a month of rent that we were hoping not to have to pay because we and we were working constantly to get this done, but just because right. the project took longer than we expected. So we, it wasn't ready for renters. And so we paid the first month mortgage. And then by the second month we had a contract and had a lease agreement and everything signed um, and, and new renters in, but definitely it was the, if I could do it again or when we do it again, it's going to be a very much move in ready property. That's the biggest learning point. Right. Or, or, you, or you anticipate yes. some extra time yes, to, to exactly. renovate it. And I think that's just for anybody out there who's looking to do a DIY project or do some renovations on their own, almost double the time yeah. that you think that it's going to take, <laughs> yeah. if not triple. Straight up. like um, I've run into that so many times doing bathrooms or anything like that where, yeah, I was up against it. I remember my first bathroom that I redid. It was the only bathroom in our house <laughs> at that time. And so Nicole like went away for the weekend to her parents. But yeah, that was tough not <laughs> yeah. having a bathroom and living in the city. And yeah, that was a, a, a project that took way longer. It was one I was pulling my hair out. But after we got it done, it was great. But yeah. It's definitely something that you want yeah. to plan ahead for. Yeah, you think, oh, I'll time. just paint this whole house. It should take a weekend. And you're sitting there and in the first right. day you take <laughs> one room and you're like, oh, no, this is, we did a terrible thing. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly, exactly. So one last question I wanted to ask you, um, and I wanted to ask anybody who does come onto my podcast or that I interview is that what's one piece of advice that you would give to other young families? And it doesn't have to be about mortgages or anything like that. It could be any personal advice, life advice, money advice, uh, marriage advice. It could be anything. Uh, it does not have to be for mortgages. That's a great question. I would say being consistent in everything that you do, coming home to your spouse, try to stay consistent, try to have your schedule consistent, try to have your budget consistent and your expectations consistent, because I think that that's something that I have done well in my life and it keeps me level-headed. It keeps things from kind of going off the rails because we do things, we, we say that we're going to do things and we do them consistently. And I think that really, really leads to good things. And you can extrapolate that to any part of your life, but just I would say consistency. I like that. I think, you know, just getting into good habits and, and kind of all the good things that come from, from that. Uh, but no, I think that's Thank some you. great advice. You caught me off guard. So I, uh, 
Yeah, I know. That's that was. <laughs> I told you I wasn't gonna have, uh, have that question ready for you, but I wanted to. to it's a great put question. That one in yeah, front thank of you. So I want to say thanks for coming on the podcast. Before you leave, what's some ways that people can contact you if they got any questions or want to reach out to you for uh, getting a mortgage? Uh, what's the best way to do yeah. that? If you, you? Uh, if you don't know me personally and aren't already connected to me, my Instagram handle, my Instagram is the main area that I have on social media and everything like that. So my Instagram handle is Kyle McGann underscore LO. And you can DM me on there. You can find my business card, my contact information. And I've also got personal social media accounts, but that's my business one. So if you ever want to reach out, I'm always there. Well, thanks again, Kyle. Thanks for coming on. Uh, and I Absolutely. hope we can do this again It was soon. truly a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And I think you got a great thing going here. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Thank you for listening to the Wealthy Homes Podcast. Be sure to click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Connor Bowsman or Preferred Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of Connor Bowsman or other qualified financial advisors with any questions you may have regarding this episode. Connor Bowsman is a licensed financial advisor and any of the securities and advisory services offered are through Harbor Investments. Products and services provided are not NCOA insured, have no credit union guarantee, and may lose value. Consumers Professional Credit Union and Marshall Community Credit Union and Harbor Investments are separate and independent companies, and credit unions are not providing security services.